it's time for us to join our next guest, and it's uh, Peter Lloyd joining us from Coriol. Good morning, Peter. How are you this morning? Good morning. Very well, thank you. Looks like you're uh, in the car, mate. What's going on there? You're. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm at a holiday house, and then I realised about three minutes ago that there's absolutely zero signal. So <laughs> the old <laughs> I I'm country. Jump in the car and drive to the top of the hill, which has a spectacular view. So I'm very happy. <laughs> well, so well, whereabouts are you? Uh, Victor Harbour, so about half an hour south of McLaren Vale. No, fantastic. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us on your holiday. That's that's above and beyond. <laughs> oh, God, I'm committed, aren't I? Yep. <laughs> that's good. You are indeed. So speaking of committed, I mean, it's a pretty huge job to be managing a place like Coriol, and I know it runs in the family, but it's a bit of a new gig for you too. When did you start, uh, when did you take over from the old man? Uh, 23rd of March, 2020. Yeah. Um, and I think the uh, we were living in Victoria, and um, so we drove over on the 23rd of March and the borders closed on the 24th. So right. I was about to say 23rd yes. of March. And I was like, that was D-Day. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. Well. So I think that old, my old man was quite happy to, what's the term, handball the footy and, and, <laughs> yeah. and lead me to it. So. That's a hospital pass, mate. That's <laughs> what that is. Timing, wow. Yeah, no, the timing was spectacular. Anyway, that's unbelievable. But yeah, so Coriol, uh, so that was started in the in the nineteen sixties, wasn't it, uh, by your parents? So tell us tell us the history of the estate, and we'll get into all that other stuff later on. Yeah, so my grandparents started the property in sixty seven. Well, started uh, Coriol in nineteen sixty seven, um, but it had actually been um, settled uh, European settlement probably hundred years previous, about yeah. eighteen. 1860, um, and it had been a mixed farm for 100 years. And, um, yeah, so the timing was right. In about 1967, I think there was three or four other cellar doors in the district, and people were just starting to make dry wine, you know, after 60 or 70 years of, of producing port and sherry. And um, yeah. so, you know, it was it was small, and it still is small, but it was, um, yeah, everything about it was was relatively moderate, and, um, and it's just been a very slow organic natural progression for the last 55 years for our family anyway can i ask a quite a random question why coriol what's what's where does the name come from uh depends which member of the family you speak to the one i like the best is that it was just um, a good friend of my grandparents was coming to see their new property and the night before he had a dream and um and in his dream, he was driving to this property he'd never met, had this gorgeous big sign at the entrance, and it said Coriol. And um, so he told my grandparents, and they said, oh, well, that's as good as any. We'll keep that. Um, but <laughs> there's Easy, also, works. That's a great <laughs> name. Came in a dream. Yeah, well, there's another suggestion that it's Corioli, which was the, um, the ancient city south of Rome where the generals from Rome were chosen. Um, and my grandmother quite liked reading ancient history i guess and um and was quite obsessed with words and she did think that a, a name that started with c and a strong name would be good um so i don't know we sort of it goes back and forth some people get have strong opinions about where the name came from for a while and then they forget and so a, a little bit unsure to be honest that's right. Never, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. It works is what really I say. well. Yeah, what let's I say. just keep the mystique rolling around for another <laughs> couple of centuries. So, uh, tell us about your grandparents then. What sort of people were they, and um, how did they come across this estate? What what happened there? Well, they're at dinner um, at what's well, not even that. I was about to say now Seaview, but across the road, which was Seaview, the be- beautiful property that uh, Treasury now owns. Um, 
and that because they had a property a Wollonga um, growing almonds and they lived in the city and um, they were down I guess for the weekend and, and overheard the gossip that um, the, the property next door was coming up for sale and I guess it was it was like that wasn't it it was less transparent it was just mm. sort of people talked and oh okay maybe I'll sell rather than putting a massive sign up and a ten thousand dollar marketing campaign to sell a property mm. so it just sort of came across and um, and they actually bought it originally with the collets of Woodstock. Yeah, right. Um, because at that point, my grandparents didn't really know anything about um, making wine. They had always had an agricultural property. And um, so for them, it was really a, a, the scientific endeavour, the cultural endeavour, um, and also just a lovely opportunity to have a, you know, a property in the country. Um, and so, but they were pretty modest about the whole exercise. And, um, and it just started very, you know, like I mentioned earlier, pretty slowly, but immediately they were making very good wine. And I think my mm. grandfather's scientific rigor um, was almost uh, a little unheard of at that right. point in that he had a pH meter, which was, you know. <laughs> They're very progressive. Yeah, like, what is this thing? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so, no, they were pretty wholesome people. My grandmother was a great artist and um, and they had big parties and they were just very, uh, I think, pretty interested, engaged people that, um, yeah, I think it gave a, a lot back to the community. And um, so it wasn't about any great sort of commercial endeavour to begin with and it just, uh, yeah, sort of went from there. But no, they were lovely, lovely people, very engaging and, and, and well-travelled and and, um, and had had that sort of privilege to be educated and... Um, and take a, an opportunity on something, I guess, which wasn't really happening. It was pretty early for that sort of stuff to yeah, be happening. Th- however, there was a bl- an old block of Shiraz, as you guys would... Well, I know you've lived in Melbourne and, and around the world, Shiraz slash Shiraz. There, there was an old block on the estate when they bought it, wasn't there? Yeah, well, unfortunately, there was also an old block of Grenache and there was also an old block of sort of mixed plantings of Carignan and Mataro and various right. things. Um, and so the... Um, the old Shiraz was there and that was in pretty good nick because it was the bottom of the hill. And this was prior to any irrigation, of course. So yeah. everything had to be dry grown. And the Shiraz was always grown down in the bottom of the gullies, being less drought tolerant than, say, Carignan or Grenache or Matara. And um, so the the other half of that block was pretty scary, scrappy. So they pulled it out, unfortunately. And, um, and then uh, there was also some really old Grenache, which... It's pretty horrific to say, but that was pulled out in the 80s after four years of not being able to even give the fruit away. Mm, yeah. Oh, right. But, yeah. um, and so that made way for Sangiovese, which, of course, has done fantastic things. But, um, mm. yeah, a little bit, um, what's the word, uh, shocking <laughs> to think that, that that potentially 150-year-old Grenache vineyard was yeah, yeah. pulled out. But, you know, that's life. We don't oh, want to Oh, well, look, you were paving way for, for other things. So you just touched on Sangiovese. You're a... Uh, you guys are kind of pioneers of Sangiovese in Australia. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that was in the 80s, like I said. Grenache was so desperately uncool, you couldn't give the stuff away. And <laughs> um, uh, quite literally. It seems, you know, seems so strange now, but yeah. For years it went unpicked, you know. It was just not financially viable. Decade anyway, of shame, so- the 80s. Decade of shame. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, rightly so, I think my old man who was back by then was looking for new opportunities because you had to, otherwise you're going to go broke. And um, mm. and so Sangiovese was not what we imagine it now, where we have all these great pillars of um, Chianti and Chianti Classico and Montepulciano and... and, um, and it was it was a pretty disorganized chaotic region so it's not like we were looking to this great region and saying wow this is what we must do Mm. Mm. it was more like 
probably tried one or two wines from Sangiovese, which was even quite hard to find in Australia. And I was like, wow, this is different. You know, this is something mm-hmm. truly unique that, uh, well, truly unique to Australia, um, that uh, we can try to, you know, make a start with, which, you know, I think for the first 10 years was a pretty, um, what's the word, a bit of regret perhaps <laughs> when when you realise how terrible and how difficult it is viticulturally <laughs> if you're not if you're not used to it. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and then also you've got to try to convince Australian palates in the 80s to drink this wine. It was high in acidity, high in tannin, but low in body. And um, I think there was a lot of polite rejection in the early days. But <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least it was polite. <laughs> <laughs> but that's great because it means you have now 40 years worth of kind of history working with this variety. And yeah. Um, yeah. and it's now our most important wine. But, um, yeah. you know, perhaps we could have chosen something slightly easier to grow. But well, anyway. what, what makes it so hard <laughs> it to grow? Like you guys wanted a challenge. Oh, yeah. yeah, what uh, makes it look, so hard to grow, Peter? Because, I mean, it, it's look, like one of those things where the, the listeners – um, you know, they, they probably don't understand some of the things about and how hard it is to grow. But also uh, Christopher uh, on the back of that has asked, he says he loves the Coriol Vita Reserve Sangio. He'd like to know how it's different from the standard. So a bit of a two-part question there, mate. Yeah, you could probably start with the Vita and that's the oldest vineyard. I think it's now the oldest vineyard in Australia. So that's the original clone that came in. Um and um, so it's HXV9, which a lot of people wrote off because they thought it was cool to write off. But now we actually, after 40 years, we sort of celebrate as probably our top clone. Anyway, um, Sangiovese is a variety. Um, when it was planted on that site originally, you know, it would cro- it would throw a crop of 10, 12 tonne to the acre, you know, um, which to put it in perspective, we don't want any more than three tonne really to make a, a wine like Vita now. So yeah. um, how do you manage that? Well, you manage that by by pruning, but then you're also managing by shoot thinning, by bunch thinning. All of those things have to happen manually um, and it's all very expensive to do. So, yeah. um, and, and then the other problem that you have is that Sangiovese, it's a bit of a wuss um, in that it has very thin skins um, and is very a, a very tight bunch, um, so basically just prone to, to to disease. If you have cool weather, uh, botrytis can become a real issue. Yeah. Um, and so, look, it's now we have learned how to manage it, um, but it wasn't say you know forty years ago put it in the ground and expect it to grow as reasonably as Shiraz, for example. It just yeah. requires you know two or three extra manual passes through the vineyard. And then a lot of work with site selection, rootstock selection, um, and just a really good um, regime around pest management and disease. So you're dealing with a couple of interesting um, uh, varietals. The uh, the pick a pool. Okay, okay. How do, how do I pronounce that? Uh, pick, well, you nearly there. Pick pool. <laughs> pick, 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 pick pool. Pick pool to pin Yeah. So that's. Um, a, oh, sorry. You go on. No, I was just going to say that I, I've enjoyed a couple of bottles over Christmas and I, and I loved it and it's not a variety. I think I'd only had about one or two before. It's not something that I mm. often come across. So um, I just wanted to hear you talk about it. Yeah, well, that was another disastrous decision to plant Pickpool. <laughs> <laughs> you think San Gervaisi's hard, Pickpool takes it to the next level. Uh, oh, that's a shocker. Um, no, the, no, that was really, um, again... <laughs> probably attracted to, and again, my old man sort of attracted to the underdog status of that variety. So we spent quite a lot of time in the UK. Um, my mum was was born there. And so we had connections with, with the UK. And so started to see this wine um, pop up on, on wine lists or in, in, in um, you know, the supermarket wine shops, probably I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And it was cheap. You know? <laughs> and 
not that we're you know well maybe we are cheapskates but there was there was something about it that was like it was cheap but it was also a quality and a style that we could really relate to mm-hmm. um and it wasn't trying too hard it just had this beautiful refreshment and um, and i think a lot of australian palettes could immediately relate to that right. um and there was none here and i was like okay let, let's give it a crack and we shared it a we shared an importer in ireland with um with a couple of producers from pickpool and so there was a bit of chit chat and um and so, yeah, we, it was one of those ones we had to import the cuttings because there weren't any here. So it was quarantine and it was years and years and years. And mm. we had to label it as something else because we didn't want anyone pinching our idea and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, and I had this moment in the vineyard when they were planting and the sticks and they were labeled as Borbalonk, which is another variety from yeah. there. And I... Oh my sort of heart sunk and I was like, oh my gosh, don't tell me we've gone through all of this. And I, yeah, I went and saw my dad and he was like, no, no, don't worry. Don't worry. It's um, yeah, purely for strategic purposes. But, very um, strategic. <laughs> the old Blue Harvest Star Wars thing happening yeah. there, Peter. That's yeah, very clever. Sneaky, sneaky fingers yes. in the nursery, I no. guess. Anyway, um, but look, it's again, like San Giovanni, so we've been growing it now for, I guess, I can't even think, a decade at least. And um you know, it's it's a challenge for sure. Throws a massive crop, defoliates easily, very prone to powdery mildew, um, and so again, you just have to learn how to learn how to farm it. And um, yeah. vine ages has certainly helped. We've got a lot more regularity now, but. Mm. Yeah, sometimes you sort of scratch your head and think, wow, I could have chosen something slightly easier. <laughs> makes it makes perfect yeah. sense though if you think about where. Pick pools from down in the Languedoc in, in France there and all mm. the great sort of seafood that they have around there. And, of course, yeah. you guys have incredible seafood, just sort of a stone's throw, really. Yeah, well, we think about our sort of obsession in probably July to find new seasons oysters. I mean, are there any Pacifics? But, you know, they're still, we're still South Australians are still addicted to that kind of fresh, briny mm. Pacific oyster flavour. And, mm. um, and so, and that's typically when we bottle uh, pick pool. So it's a, it's a lovely coincidence or a lovely um happenstance uh, yeah yeah lovely circumstance yeah, that's that, um, and those go hand in hand so absolutely um, and uh, we've also got kim's back on the back on the blower so it says with fiano having such a broad spectrum of flavor compounds how do you distinguish what flavor profile you're looking for and more specifically regular versus the rubato yeah good question great yeah. question kim's back yeah. Love it. <laughs> fiano is one of those great varieties and that you can um I'm, I'm not sure if you've tried many of the wines from the home in campagna where the attitude can range from say 200 meters to i think 600 or 700 meters above sea level all within mm-hmm. the same docg yeah and you can get completely different flavors on one hand you can get wines that almost look like shabbly they're so sort of fine and crystalline mm-hmm. and the others are you know rich broad full ripe styles we really want to go somewhere in the middle um, in that we want the refreshment that you get from a naturally high acidic variety. We also really want to highlight the aromatics, which you get from, from Fiano, um, but really want to emphasize texture. And so Fiano is one of those great varieties that gives you high natural acidity, really high aromatic influence, but also great texture. Um, and so to get all the three in one is tricky um, with varieties. And so, but saying that Fiano, I mean, we've, I look at a wine, you know, like the 15 Fiano, for example, won loads of gold medals. But at the time, I didn't really like it. You know, yeah. it was it was picked quite green, um, almost mm. Sauvignon Blanc-like in its in its mm. flavour profile. Right. Um, and look, it's a lovely wine now with um, with 
six or seven, and obviously people thought it was lovely wine at the time, but that style, that really highly acidic, quite that fine. Tarps, yeah. It, it, it's not, to me, it wasn't really expressive of, of, of the true potential of the variety. Um, whereas the 19, we probably went like a little harder. And so it's quite a rich, unctuous style. And um, part of that season, part of that's, you know, the, the hand of the winemaker. But um, look, it sounds a bit of a cop out, but we like to go somewhere in the middle. Um, and um, we've just put, purchased another vineyard actually in the Adelaide Hills recently that has some Fiano on it. Um, so we'll probably look to create that in a slightly finer mineral style. Um, but the Rubato is, um, is probably our opportunity to really push extract um, and flavour to the next level. So it's from the oldest block. Um, and it, uh, we just, it just gets a little bit more ripeness, maybe a, a, a half a Beaumet or so. And, um, and it's a pretty low yielding bit of, um, uh, bit of the vineyard, which is good and bad, but we're, we're lucky if we get two tons of the acre. So commercially it's not all that viable unless you're making a pretty smart wine. Mm. Um, and then that gets some time really in skins on the press, um, skins in the press just to encourage extraction and um, and then it's fermented in 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 seasoned oak um, but it just typically gives us a much more powerful intense rich and concentrated style really to show off the full potential of of the variety sure. so you you actually um you're very well known for your beautiful shiraz i mean the soloist shiraz that was the first coriol wine i ever had and i've, I've now had a of them um, <laughs> and they're beautiful i love your chenin blancs i've got a lot of your wines at home and my mother-in-law absolutely loves it so she came for christmas brings you know 12 bottles of coriol she's brought along the um the uh the, the italian uh picks so the negromaro the neros um pick paul fiano etc it's, it's a great pack can you talk to a bit about these negromaros and neros i thought they were absolutely stunning by the way especially the nero yeah, I think Nero and Negro Amaro really have given us the opportunity to make a wine that is not full-bodied. Mm, <laughs> it is very yep. comfortable being medium or even in the case of Negro Amaro, relatively light. Yeah. Um, and at moderate, you know, moderate Beaumets and with great natural acidity. So um, the, the started with Nero or Nero Davla um, and that was yeah, quite literally traveling through Sicily. And if you've been through that sort of southeastern corner, especially around Victoria, and it's hot and there's the north wind from Africa coming and it's quite a, a harsh Mediterranean environment. Mm. And then you try some of these wines and often they're blended with frappato, but you, you try these wines and they're so fragrant and so perfumed and so ethereal. And you think, wow, this is not what I was expecting. And so that's the sort of thing that we're confronted with a bit in that we find that the styles of wine that we're getting from Nero Davla and Negro Mare are actually quite light and fragrant. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And we're not seeing like some of the Puglian Negro Amaros that you see around the place that are so full of extract and rich and concentrated and full-bodied we're not seeing that at all mm. we're seeing no. a much more fragrant expressive perfumed and maybe because that's where you start then you want to continue with that because you think wow mm. i really love this refreshment yeah <laughs> and, um, how, can i just ask how would you expect them to age i mean you know we're drinking the 22s right now so they're they're puppies yeah they're pretty how young. would you yeah. Yeah. i mean the 2014 Nero davler i had that at lunch the other day and it was absolutely gorgeous mm. um Probably, I'm not sure if the Negro Amaro would would um, 
I think the Negro Amara would probably age more like a Pinot Noir, really. Mm. Um, right. And um, I think that, but the Nero Davila, yeah, up to 10 years, fantastic. Yeah. There's enough extract and richness and acidity to, to carry it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's. That, yeah. I mean, it, it's an interesting thing because there are so many different ways to make wine and, and what a lot of people just sort of think about Shiraz in Australia, it's, I know it's a hero variety, but it's in every wine region and there's a whole spectrum yeah. of all that stuff. But people are a little younger than me, obviously the next generation coming through, they want something different. They do want something light. They do want something fresh, something yeah. that they can just bang out a glass at lunchtime, not think about it, don't need food with it and all that sort of stuff. So I think yeah. that viability of future-proofing your business is pretty smart too. Yeah, yeah let's also hope that people continue to drink Shiraz, you know. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, they will. They well, will. Because... And if they stop, I'll hold the phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I had a big display of the Lloyd Shiraz, uh, Shiraz you know, at at Christmas at Alfington at Dan's because it's just one of those wines. It's just an absolute cracker. So tell us tell us about that. It's kind of your, your flagship wine, isn't it, Peter? Yeah, so that vineyard, as I mentioned earlier, when we when my grandparents bought the property, they were told that the earliest vines were planted in 1919, which was quite common um, And um, after the First World War, obviously. Um, but it was, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago, my auntie was um, writing a book on the almond history of Wollonga and McLaren Bar, which at oh. one point was really, really important. Yeah, um, yeah. And anyway, she stumbled across this paragraph written in 1875 in the South Australian Register, uh, which was the newspaper. And it talks about, um, uh, I guess, the journalist or whatever was, was going down what's now CV Road and visiting all the farms and mentions coming into what was known as Clark Hill, which is what Coriol was originally called. Yeah. And it talks about the lady he met, Miss Boulderstone, and it talks about the vineyard that the, the um, fruit came from. And, and it's like, hold on. Oh, we didn't know there was vines planted back then. And it talks about that being um, Shiraz and it talks about where it was planted. And it's like, oh, hold on. That's the old vineyard, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's exactly the same size. And, the, and, and, and so anyway, um, the point was that now we think it's actually planted probably around 1860, which makes more sense. Um, anyway, it was 1989 that... Um, you know, I guess people like the Henschkes had been doing it for a long time and obviously um, and various other producers, but the idea to create a single vineyard wine was still pretty uncommon um, and or to, or to market one as such. Yeah. And, um, and so that was 1989 was the first, um, the first release where it was, it was called a, um, I think prior to that, they called it a special claret or a special vintage Shiraz or something. <laughs> and um and yeah, so look, it's really just the representation of that little two-acre vineyard, and um, and it's always a pretty um, aromatic, um, full, rich, complex, beautifully textured Shiraz. Not always the biggest Shiraz off the property, but certainly the most cohesive in terms of tannin. And um, and when we look at all of these assessments, and it's all done blind, um, you know, we're pretty comfortable that that vineyard and now our other old vineyard in Wollonga are pretty much always at the top but it's really that cohesion of tannin um, that, that sets them apart you can get attracted to the aromatics and and richness of other wines but it's it's not until you get that beautiful seamless tannin that you're like wow we're we're on to something um not every year we didn't make it in 2017 um but uh, most years it yeah it really shines that's fantastic and if if you get on the old Coriol website uh, there's actually a cracking vineyard map. I love vineyard maps, so people can actually <laughs> they can actually look at when things were pl- so much. Yeah, yeah. Well, when when things were planted and how much there is, and it gives you a sense of the the estate, which I think is great. Um, just got about a minute left uh, talking to Peter Lloyd from Coriol. Um, how's how's it tracking this year? Because over in Victoria, it's been a bit up and down. 
Yeah, I mean, back in October, we were scratching our heads a bit, thinking this is probably the most severe disease pressure we've we've had since 1993, um, which was a, a big downy year, downy mm. year. Yeah. Um, but look, basically, I mean, I, you know, I remember our, our Christmas show was it was still cold, everyone was freezing, and that was a few days before Christmas. But basically, after Christmas, the the weather systems have changed, and we right. haven't had any rain, and it's been warm. It's not warm today, but it's so the disease pressure has lifted, um, and we're looking at a moderate crop um probably similar to last year hopefully what yield wise um and uh, no we're very happy we're um uh you know it all looks relatively even there's some poor fruit set and things like fiano which is a shame because we really need the fruit but um uh grenache you know was probably the most influenced by by downy early on in the season but that has no impact now because that's all just sort of aborted and so crop levels might be down a little bit but um no we're we're pretty optimistic we think it's going to be a very good season um there's obviously lots of doom and gloom out there in terms of um in terms of fruit in various regions but um and you know oversupply potentially but you know for us in our little corner of the world things yes things still seem pretty optimistic and and rosy and that's fantastic good luck for v23 uh and thank you for joining us peter lloyd from coriol on the wine show australia thanks very much for having me guys